Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased this week to be joined by one of America's great crime writers, Sarah Paretsky, who's just about to publish the 19th, I think I'm right in saying, of her V.I. Wachowski novels, which is called Shell Game. Shell Game takes sort of two strands, I think it's fair to say, doesn't it? In one of them, Vic's best friend's son seems to be a suspect in a murder and he's involved in kind of immigration activism. And in the other, it's her niece turns up on her doorstep, her long-lost niece, her sister having disappeared, and amid a murky tale of sexual harassment and corporate malfeasance. I don't think that gives away too much. <laughs> but Sarah, the, these two strands, they're both very personal to Vic, but they also seem quite obviously to hit, you know, the Me Too movement on one side of them and the sort of ICE, the immigration thing. I mean, was it very conscious for you to kind of make this novel speak to the historical moment? Not in that way, not with the Me Too movement, because I had written quite a lot of the novel before that actually got underway. I really struggled. I would have written this novel a lot faster. We would have been sitting here eight months ago if I hadn't worried so much about the two strands and whether whether it was really stretching belief to have them come together the way they did, I kept stopping and restarting. I just did a piece for Good Housekeeping UK where they asked me for the last book that made me cry, and I wanted to say my own book when I realized I had to throw out draft five and start again with draft six. <laughs> oh, so these two things weren't organically twined. Well, they were there. They were always there from the beginning, but I kept thinking they weren't working together. And then I finally just jumped off the high dive and made them work together. Vi has a was briefly married quite a long time ago now, but her ex husband and she met in law school. He's a very high priced and not really that agreeable kind of person. And every now and then, I enjoy bringing him out and just poking fun at him. Poor thing. He's a fink. He is a fink. And by all rights, at the end of the book, he ought to be, if not in handcuffs, at least disbarred. But but he has to be there every now and then when I need some hyper-wealthy person to do something bad and need a finky lawyer. Dick, the ex-husband, Richard Yarbrough, has to be there to fill that role. So he he, he carries on (laughs) as if nothing had happened. But he turned out to have... A sister who was a heroin addict who had two daughters that she abandoned and were were living on the streets on their own. And I took their story a little bit. I had mentored two inner city girls in Chicago. The story of their lives was quite shocking. Their mother had been a crack addict, crack cocaine, and she had actually sold her twin daughters for sex at the age of 12, and they came into the foster care system, and then I came into their lives as an adult mentor. I had never had never really wanted to write about that. I think it's very exploitative, but their history ended up sliding into what had gone on with these two sisters in their own early teen years. Are you still in touch with these girls? I am. And their lives have not turned out well, but they haven't turned out as horribly as they might have without intervention. And so do you, do you sort of run, a, you know, saying your story is entering my story, do you feel a duty to people who you draw on a little bit to say, look, you know, this is what I'm doing. Are you happy with it? Yes, and I feel a duty to people not to 
abuse their stories by making use of them. So it's it's complicated. It's compl- I hate that expression. Now it's become so common, but and I also feel that there's so much sexploitation in contemporary crime fiction that I've never wanted to go near it, and yet it ended up being somewhat central to the story. And I can only hope that I didn't do it in a titillating or semi-pornographic way. I mean, you've said there were these two two strands that you were struggling to make come together. Is that, I mean, I'm always interested in how crime writers compose, i.e. do they know where they're going? Do they have a sort of plot mapped in advance? I mean, did you sort of start with two little donnas, you know, this is, we'll start with a dead body and see where this goes, and oh, here's the niece. To, I mean, how, <laughs> I'm just trying to get a sense of when you get your first purchase on a plot, and does it come with a situation or a scene or... It varies from book to book. With Shell Game, the story really started in my head with an article in The New Yorker, it might be three years ago now, about stolen artifacts and the way in which hyper-wealthy people, there's a certain, they feel they're above the law in so many different ways, and they are above the law, or at least the law can't touch them in so many ways, and they, they have an outright pleasure in owning things that were stolen. And it it turns out that there are these massive warehouses that are kind of like art museums in places like the Cayman Islands or St. Kitts and places like that where, where they house these things. And not only the tax collectors can't see them, but angry spouses or business partners that they've done wrong to don't know that they're there. And so periodically they'll jet in and savor their moment in front of their stolen Cezanne or whatever it is, and then they'll jet out again. There I, are those sort of art museums even in customs zones, aren't there? In some yeah, ways, that's even what legitimate it is. It's, art, it's, but it's just it's, it's, it can't be moved. Right. Yeah. yeah. So th- that was kind of on my on my mind, and I created my own mythical or fictional island in the West Indies where a lot of these tax dodge places are in the countries almost exist as that's the main business. You can go online and get your own ID for setting up your own sheltered. Even you, Sam, you too. Immediately after this. (laughs) I mean, one of the kind of curiosities of of Vekla is she does seem kind of specialized in financial crime in you know, that sort of end of things. Whereas, you know, most fictional gumshoes are, you know, they end up as it's murder or adultery or, mm-hmm. you know, theft. I mean, it's, it's, you know, she's more interested in accountancy than Philip Marlowe, you know. <laughs> yes, and I, I know less and less about sophisticated finance as, as I get further away from it. But when I wrote my first three books, I was working for a, a multinational insurance company. So I was working in the financial sector. And I wanted to write, I'd for years had wanted to write a crime novel. I read a lot of crime fiction. wanted to write my own crime novel with a woman who turned the tables on the traditional kind of vamp model of the American noir novel or the, the sort of virgin who couldn't tie her shoes without adult supervision if she wasn't going to be a vamp. And it took me a long time to get the courage to actually create my character and, and and go forward. And so when I started with it, I set the book in insurance because I wanted to make everything as easy as possible. And I knew something about insurance in those days. 
so so that was kind of where it started. And my mentor at the time, Stuart Kaminsky, said, well, you know, specialize in white-collar crime because it's not written about very much. So there you have it. Yeah. And you, you say you were kind of, obviously you were an enthusiastic consumer of crime fiction, but... I mean, these sort of um, stereotypes, were the particular writers you were kind of kicking against? I mean, people you, you thought, you know, like, I love this writer, but there's misogyny going right the way through their work, like a stick of rock. I mean... Yes, I mean, the Bible, for instance. Um, <laughs> That's Adam, normally classed as a crime book, but it contains plenty, you know. Adam, who's... Eve is testing out her her never-before-road-tested sexual powers and Adam succumbs and it's all downhill from there. <laughs> and so ever since then, men have been trying to show Adam what a... Can I say wanker? Uh, it's um, all right. You can say yeah. this is for adults. Um, I mean, we don't have that word in America and I just think it's such a perfect word. So Adam was such a wanker and they're going to show him up and be tough and stand up to this temptress. And it really goes all the way back to... Lady Audley's Secret, which is one of the earliest full-length crime novels in the 1860, I think, 1861. Lady Audley is beautiful beyond belief and uses her wiles against the guys and so on and so forth. And But this kind of not very attractive, you know, sort of a little bit overweight, chubby guy, cousin, nephew, I don't remember exactly what, stands up to her and shows what she's really up to. And it just seems to be a theme for crime fiction just all the way down. Even now you'll find it in, in some places. Yeah, it's a sort of kiss off for the Maltese Falcon and all that. Right, yeah. Do you, I mean, when you started out writing Vic, VI, you were kind of out there on your own. Do you think things have caught up? I mean, do you... Oh, I think they've you know, caught up and they've moved past me in some ways. Marsha Muller, California writer, had written a book in 1977 that I didn't know about because it wasn't it was it just wasn't publicized widely but she was there sort of struggling even more on her own Liza Cody here had published her first PI novel in 1980 and then Sue Grafton and I were together in 1982 and after that it just seemed as though the time was right people wanted that kind of of heroine they wanted that kind of novel and now there are just so many different writers doing so many different things. Here in the UK, I think you've got an amazing group of writers. I think of Denise Mina and Val McDermott in Scotland yeah. particularly. Liza continues to be one of the most unusual and creative voices in fiction, crime fiction, thrillers. And in the States... Also, they're just women doing many things, and men now, too, are are creating interesting women and, and credible women in many instances. There's a British writer named William Shaw who has just published a book called Salt Lane with a woman who's sort of expelled from the Met and ends up in a remote coastal town. And I, I thought it was very credible what, what he had done with his women. Yeah, do you, I mean, there's also a sort of strand in some crime writing where it seems to be there's a sort of new vamps where the women, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, I mean, even someone like Bitt Hilton, you know, these sort of female characters who are sort of super vampy but in control. Yes, that's... What do you feel about that sort of line? Well, that's not my own... I don't know that particular writer. And I, 
it's not a it's not a way of being that I'm particularly comfortable with maybe but maybe that shows my age and my own personal lack of vampiness uh, <laughs> I mean are there people you look to as sort of peers I mean will you kind of go I don't know how's Patricia Cornwell getting on you know is she certainly but good enough you know are you do you do that kind of comparing yourself to other people sort of looking across and seeing well to some extent I and mean, there's the writers like Karen Slaughter for instance yeah. or not not Patsy Cornwell so much but or again Denise here yeah. Nevada Barr at home who I think writes really wonderful novels with her she has a park ranger who I think the scariest chase scene I ever read was Nevada's book she wrote a number of years ago, the title of which escapes me, but it's set. The Edmund Fitzgerald was a Great Lakes freighter that went down in Lake Superior in, in real life, in actuality. And Nevada has a chase scene through this sunken ship. And you know that oxygen supplies are limited, and it's not like James Bond in the Caribbean where where you're confident that he's going to kick his way to the top. It's it's so claustrophobic, and I didn't sleep for nights after that. Can you also say, I mean, has your conception of Vic and her place in the world and her way of being, has it changed over the years? Absolutely. When I started, it was unheard of for women to be doing that kind of work. So my first book was published in 82. I wrote it seventy nine eighty. And women were not even allowed to be on the Chicago police force in regular roles then. I was part of the first wave of women to enter management and the professions in large numbers. It used to be a woman applied to medical school in the States, and they'd say they had their woman. They would allow one woman in (laughs) in each entering class. And that just is so changed now. There's a long way to go, but my goodness, we've come a long way way and it's sometimes easy to forget that so it would have been in the first book or maybe the first two books she's kind of having to go head to head with people who who in pd james words you know don't think this is a suitable job for a woman but it would be ludicrous to have her fighting that battle now and it's just taken for granted that women can do and Does do, that mean do the world's that changed around her a bit rather than yeah. vice versa though. yeah uh, i mean that thing of the passage of time I think kind of when people are writing a long-running kind of serial novel with one protagonist, you do have that agonising thing of do they do they age in real time? I know I saw Robert B. Parker before he died, and I was saying, you know, how does Spencer age? And he said, well, I just didn't want a 75-year-old detective and his right. girlfriend bopping around Boston. Yeah. So he said, you know, he ages at about a quarter of the rate. of everyone else. You changed it, didn't you? Did you I did, because point? I did want her to age in real time until I realized that I had a long-running series and I also noticed noticed what age did to the human body did not make it more supple and more active and quicker it made it somewhat slower yeah I know it's it's astonishing I might do a whole monograph on this and it particularly mattered to me actually partly I thought about it because of Spencer he was that those were books that originally I liked to read they and Spencer was a Korean War veteran, and after a yeah. while, you just can't believe it. And V.I. was shaped by the social justice movements of the 60s, and her mother was a refugee from fascist Italy, and now I'm stretching that band of plausibility. But some of it is my own age, where you get old, older. I'm not old. 
yeah, there are just so many losses of your own capabilities, of lovers, husbands, friends, and I want to keep it out of my fictional world. Yeah. Why did why did it matter much to you that she was aging in real time? Well, just because of who she is is very much a product of the civil rights movement, the second wave so feminism. You're to kind of root her in a, an yeah. ideological historical. Yeah, and world. the books tend to be very historically grounded. And the, it's not a deliberate choice. It's just where my head is. You know, con- current events, contemporary events, are what spark my stories. And you had Obama bopping around in the background of a couple of novels back. Yeah, then. that was about number yeah. fifteen. Um, he, he, uh, I read somewhere you came across him. You were in well. Chicago, he was my yeah. local representative when he was little Barack in the state legislature. <sighs> And I think if he kept all of his papers, every letter ever written to him by an adoring constituent, that I might be the first person who gave money to his U.S. Senate campaign because he ran unsuccessfully. Well, you keep that one. No. I'm, actually, no, I stumbled on it the other day looking for something else, actually, oddly enough. But he ran for the U.S. House of Representatives, and he came up against the Daily Machine and was badly hit over the head, lost phenomenally. And he sent out a letter, as one does in the States, to his friends and well-wishers asking for money to pay for his campaign expenses. And I wrote him a check and said, use this for your Senate campaign. That's where we need you. So, gosh, I went into an Internet cafe this morning to clean out my – I had been answering emails on my phone, but my server, I needed to clean out all those emails. I had accumulated 720 emails in the week that I've been away and all but 20 of them were solicitations from political candidates. In Britain, you have no idea how lucky you are to have the campaign finance laws that you have. <laughs> yes, well, we do. We, or, we, or we have good spam filters anyway. Did it, I mean, obviously, VI is sort of hefted to Chicago in the same way that Marlowe is you know, hefted to LA or you know, many of those other. Mm-hmm. Was it just, again, the convenience that you were living and do live in Chicago that you just thought, let's make her a Chicago girl? Or was there something about the the setup as a sort of neglected I, city for crime. Yeah, well. no, I grew up in Kansas, so still the Midwest. Chicago is where I moved when I was 19 and where I really came of age, and so it's a city that means something very personal and special to me. And the kind of books that I write, Chicago is, a, we have a wonderful, sophisticated veneer with our lakefront and music, everything from cutting-edge pop and jazz to classical. But it's still a a shot-in-a-beer kind of town. It's still very much a blue-collar town. And her her personality just fits that town. Who she is just wouldn't work in San Francisco or in New York. I think they'd just roll her out like a pastry. (laughs) Um, Actually, speaking of being real, one of the things that has always struck me in reading was they spend an awful lot of time tired. You know, yes, um, my, my editor, Carolyn Mays at Hodder, pointed that out and said she X'd about 50 passages of VI's extreme fatigue from Shell Game. So I, I'm going to the new book, if I ever actually buckle down, I need a command, like a dog commander saying, sit, stay, to keep me at my machine instead of getting up every 30 seconds and rustling around for another snack. But anyway, whoops, yes. If I ever actually sit and stay in front of that machine, 
I am going to be very mindful. There are things that I need to be mindful of. The I used to choke and have a lot of bile coming up in distressing situations. No longer. She used to snort a lot in moments, that, or people around her did in moments of disbelief. No more. And the, the fatigue will be cut way, way back. I think some of it was, I have this chronology. I work out, I mean, I do all my writing online, but my idea mapping, because I don't plot massively in advance, because I don't have a chess brain. I can't, like P.D. James told me that she outlined in so much detail that she would just write the chapter she was in the mood to write. I'm like, whoa, I have no idea what chapter three will be, let alone the end. But anyway... But as you go, do you sort of draw yeah, out like, yeah. okay, it's 5 p.m., she's got to be here. Right, and, and this is what... And so yeah. I would look at everything that she did in a day, and i think, oh, my God, no. I mean, if I did two of those things, I'd, I'd have to lie down for three hours for a nap. So I, I think some of it was I was projecting too much of my own feebleness onto VI, who's very fit and will continue to be a model for how women ought to age. Yes, she is fit and tough. You know, you talked about your relationship with her. Is there any ever, you know, something about what VI will think or do or an attitude she'll take that you'll be like, I'm at odds with that? Uh-huh. I mean, will you sometimes go, yeah, no, I wouldn't do it like that? Or is she, I mean, is she a sort of projection of a kind of idealized version of yourself or do you sometimes you know other characteristics of her that you're like that doesn't belong to me she's someone different yes and no in the sense that I would say that VI is not afraid to just go straight off the cliff and I would stop at the edge I'm much more cautious in almost every way than she is but she does speak with my voice I don't think her attitude towards what she's doing is at odds with me, but how she goes about it might be. And it's not just that she takes risks, because of course all these detectives have to take risks. They put their lives in danger. They go into that that hole in Milan, that eight-foot black circle that looks <laughs> like Trump Lil, and they step into it. And we're all saying, no, don't do that, you idiot. So it's not that so much as I think there there could be a different way to solve that problem, but that would be a real-world way to solve that problem. Or that problem in the real world might never be solvable, and therefore she's just going to take a machete and whack her way through all that undergrowth. You'd certainly expect a you know, character in a novel to be <laughs> a bit more adventurous and less sensible than characters in real life, wouldn't you? Other? wouldn't be a crime novel otherwise and do you think you know just to come back slightly to the you know whether or not you were planning it this has become quite a contemporary novel even if you mm-hmm. well definitely the the ice part was something that I was that that yes because as I was writing that the great nephew of of VI's very close friend Dr. Lottie Herschel so F- Felix Herschel he looks very Mediterranean. He's Canadian. Canadians do not need visas to go to university in the States, but that's irrelevant to the border control who flag him as an undocumented person. And as more and more abuses have come to light, that was very high on my mind about, about how students are treated. I, my husband was for many years 
a professor of physics at the University of Chicago. And so I've had to be involved or been able to be involved with with some of the students at the university who are facing these kinds of problems. So do, do you think that it's important that your novels, I mean, given that they are, on the one hand, they're crime novels, they're diversions, but on the other, as you say, they're very rooted in things. I mean, is it important that they take on political and social issues? I mean, could you write one that was pure entertainment or would you always feel like we're in the age of Trump, we're in the age of fake news, we need to, VI needs her say? I don't think of it like that because I think books written to make a political or, or social point are the dreariest books you could possibly read. You know, all of the Soviet realism books that can you imagine having to go to school in the Soviet Union and do your university exams and having to read socialist realism? It's like, but no wonder yeah, so that many kind of killed art. Stand dead. Didn't it? <laughs> no wonder so many Russians went into science and math. It was just easier than trying to stay awake through a socialist realist novel. Well, Sarah Presky, thank you very much indeed. You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. Um, very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.